Hello, 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 and welcome to the 16th episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. I'm your host, Danny, and over here, we have to serve you the grains of capitalism. Now, if you've been following along with the content that I've put out on this podcast, I'm sure you would have noticed that I'm a big advocate of the capitalist system and of the wonders that the markets bring to society. However, I'm not one to say that the system is completely perfect, and certainly, those who consider themselves anti-capitalist often bring up the sticking point of market failure. But what exactly is market failure? I mean, it is common for people to point out the more obvious cases of the recent financial crisis or the Great Depression, but what about other cases on the more individual level, such as how I'm able to use public goods such as the roads or the street lamps for free, or how I might be hustled out out of a second-hand car because the seller didn't mention the faulty engine? If economics is the study of how we should distribute scarce resources amongst individuals, it seems absurd that individuals can continue using public goods for free indefinitely, or unfair that one party should possess more information than the other while making a trade. The important corollary, of course, is what should or could be done about market failures and what consequences that will lead to. Today, therefore, we will be touching on the formal economic definition of market failure, clearing up some misconceptions as to what it consists, and finally looking into the issue of how to fix it. With me today to go through these topics is Brian Chang of the organization Students for Liberty, back for a second appearance on the show. If you'd like to learn more about Brian's history and influences, you can refer to episode 4, What is Capitalism, for a more detailed interview. For now, it is with great pleasure that I'm able to bring back to the Economical Rice podcast, Brian. Welcome to the show. Very good to be with you again, Denny. Alright, so let's get straight into it, right? So according to economic theory, what is the formal definition of market failure and how does it come about in our daily lives? I think that's a great question. You know, uh, market failure is one of those terms whereby people just attribute whatever they don't like mm. to market failure, right? Mm. So when something is bad in the economy, when you know an entrepreneur screws up, when a private company screws up, they say that's market failure. Yeah. Right? But we need to look into the formal definition of market failure and see what it really means. Mm. So for that, we need to delve a little bit into uh, the history of economic theory. Mm. So basically, in uh, 1954, right, there were two economists, Kenneth Arrow, Gerard Debreu. So they introduced this model which has remained the cornerstone of welfare economics ever mm. since. So what they did was to specify the conditions of general equilibrium. So let me uh, explain that a bit more. Mm. So what they did is that through a series of equations and mathematical proofs, they managed to demonstrate that the market will actually achieve competitive equilibrium and Pareto efficiency if you leave it alone. So mm. it's deemed as a rigorous proof of Adam Smith's invisible hand thesis. Right. Right? If you leave individuals to be free to pursue their self-interest, you will achieve a socially optimal outcome. So. Um, so Pareto efficiency is simply a term to refer to the state of affairs in which it's not possible to make someone better off without making someone else worse off. Mm -hmm. It means that all the gains from trade, all the gains from our voluntary exchange have been exhausted and there is no way to make someone better off without making someone else worse off. Mm -hmm. in, right? in other words, it's the most uh, efficient condition. It is the most efficient, that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, here's the key. Um, for this state of affairs to be reached, the model says that you need to have some assumptions to be held. Right. Perfect competition, mm -hmm. perfect information, mm -hmm. zero transactions cost. Right. So if all these restrictive trans um, assumptions are met, mm -hmm. then you will achieve Pareto efficiency. And this is uh, called the first fundamental theorem of welfare economics. Mm -hmm. So with this standard that, has been, that was uh, introduced in the 20th century, soon after many economists came about 
to show that hey there are many deviations right in the real world market economy from this ideal model mm-hmm. because in the real world there is no perfect competition there is no perfect information right. and there are transactions costs right. and there are many uh, real world deviations and weaknesses which which sub, which says that you know because of that real world markets fail to achieve mm-hmm. this standard of Pareto efficiency mm-hmm. and because of that we need the government to intervene and correct this market failure and restore the market back to a socially efficient point mm. so that's the the theory of market failure i see i see so in economic textbooks you can normally find a list of uh, different uh, examples that it would still point to and say this is an example of market failure right some of, the, of some of which i've mentioned in the introduction including you know that of uh, asymmetric information or public goods so could you explain some of these uh, examples uh, maybe positive and ex- uh, negative externalities and you know What? How did it deviate from Pareto efficiency, and you know how are they considered to be market failure? So the standard examples that the textbook gives would be externalities, market dominance, and public goods. Right. So issues of information asymmetry, um, behavioral economics. These are rather new market failure arguments. So there's a huge range, mm-hmm. but the standard ones would revolve around externalities, market dominance, and public goods. Mm-hmm. So if I may just uh, explain uh, some of these in more detail. Sure. So the point about externalities suggests that all the costs and benefits um, of transactions are not actually reflected and priced in the market system. Mm-hmm. So that means that. In the transactions that occur between individuals, there are some external benefits and costs that are imposed on other people on an involuntary basis right. that I didn't take into account. Right. So, for instance, if I am, you know, smoking a cigarette uh, in public, mm-hmm. right? I'm actually creating secondhand smoke that you, as a bystander, will suffer on an involuntary basis. Mm-hmm. So, I'm imposing a, a spillover effect, a third-party cost on you that I do not internalize, mm-hmm. and this suggests that the true cost, the true cost of this activity. Is higher than what the market economy uh, reflects, right? So because of this, there is what we say an overproduction mm. or an overconsumption right. of these goods and services with negative externalities. Right. So that's why the argument goes that you know we may need the government to ban such things, mm. right? To ban demerit goods. Demerit goods are goods and services with negative externalities. Yeah. So the government has to ban these things, or um, or maybe you know put a tax on them to reduce the consumption. Um, of these demerit goods. Yeah. So and, these are some of the standard policies for demerit goods. Yeah. And of course, in the case of uh, tobacco, this is common practice in Singapore and in many different countries. We have a uh, uh, cigarette tax, which increases its price, and of course, this uh, lowers the consumption of the cigarettes, hoping to achieve, of course, uh, lowering these uh, spillover effects. Right. So maybe one that uh, many people are not too familiar with that of a positive externality. So could you uh, expand that? Yeah. So positive externality is just the reverse of negative. So mm. in a sense, there are some third party um, benefits that I do not internalize. Right. So one one example that textbooks usually give would be the education and healthcare. Right. right. So if let's say I'm a very educated person, I go to school. The benefits of me being educated do not just fall on me. Those are my private benefits, mm-hmm. but. Me being educated also brings about external benefits to society. Mm-hmm. For instance, society becomes more productive when people are more educated. They may be more socialized. Mm-hmm. They may be greater sense of peace, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So there are these uh, extra secondary benefits. That's the, the 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 reason why people say we need to subsidize mm-hmm. um, healthcare and education so that society as a whole will benefit and not just us. So education is an example. Healthcare is an example. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if I am vaccinated. From a disease, right? It's not only 
I who will benefit from this uh, vaccination. Mm. When everyone is vaccinated, society as a whole is protected from uh, pandemics and epidemics. Mm. Right? So these are external benefits outside of me that I do not take into account. So the true benefits of, of these uh, uh, positive externalities are not priced in the market. That's why we need the government to come in to subsidize them. Yeah, yeah. and we can see it's a, it's a clear opposite of the case of uh, negative externalities. This one uh, about positive externalities is that you know, when, when you have this positive spillover effects, you know, uh, maybe uh, you, learn, you learn cooking and then you, know, you, can, you can make dishes with friends and family, they get the benefit and stuff like that, but it's not priced into to the cost of your education. So they tend, these, these uh, issues tend to be underproduced, which is opposite, of course, to negative externalities, which are overproduced. Which is why you know uh, policies such as subsidies and grants come in and try to to incentivize people to produce more of these. Uh, That's right. Yeah, and and also I mean there are different uh, approaches that governments have used to to resolve these problems. There's mm-hmm. a range of approaches, right. and some approaches are more command and control. Mm-hmm. Right? Command and control means they're more interventionist. They distort market forces much more, mm-hmm. and there are some intermediate solutions, and then there are more market-based solutions as well. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing is that even if there are market failures, there could be more market-based solutions to these market failures. Right, right? Right. So, so one really good example would be the negative externalities when it comes to the issue of pollution. Mm-hmm. Right? Environmental externalities one of the biggest examples that you know market failure advocates like to right. quote. Right. So um, more command and control approach. Would be to you know things like banning plastic bags, mm-hmm. um, you know putting regulations on on firms or manufacturers to install certain environmentally friendly technology. Mm-hmm. So these are more command and control methods, which may you know incur a lot of enforcement costs, monitoring costs. Yeah, a more intermediate uh, solution to that would be um, what we call Pigovian taxes and subsidies. Mm. So the actually the notion of externalities came from the economist Arthur Pigou, mm-hmm. P-I-G-O-U, yeah. and he's the one that advocates the use of taxes uh, and or subsidies uh, so that individuals will internalize these external benefits and costs. Right. So that's a more intermediate solution that is not as command and control as let's say a direct ban or regulation. So there are this range of approaches. Mm, it's interesting. All right, so let's move on. And, and we'll talk about uh, the concept of market failure and, and its uh, definitions further on. We'll, we'll, sure. we'll continue talking about this. But I want to now talk about this, right, this issue. So as I mentioned in the introduction, so you, you have uh, given us the formal definition of market failure. Right, so the term market failure is easily misconstrued amongst public opinion. And, you know, it's often on this basis used as ammunition uh, against capitalism, right? So I want to ask you, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions with regards to market failure? And why do you think these uh, misconceptions continue to hold? I think one misconception is that um, market failure becomes a catch-all term that people use to condemn the market for anything they define unsavory. Right. So whenever a capitalist or a firm charges really high prices or you know, does certain kind of a deceptive or misleading advertising, mm-hmm. right? Immediately, these are condemned as market failures, mm-hmm. right? So that there's no reference at all made to what market failure really is mm-hmm. according to the, uh, to the economic definition, right? So another one very good example would be in the case of public goods, mm-hmm. right? So according to economists, public goods are a form of market failure because of a specific set of problems, right? So public goods are goods which are non-rival mm-hmm. and non-excludable, 
Right. That means the consumption of this public good by one person doesn't diminish the value and the equal enjoyment of this good by another person. Mm. That's non-rival. So for instance, if I go under a street lamp and you come beside me, the street lamp still is of the same intensity, for example, right, yeah. for you. So it's non-rival. And non-excludable in a sense, you cannot exclude a non-payer, someone who doesn't pay from enjoying this good also. Yeah. So that's why if you can't do that, there's a free rider problem. So mm -hmm. individuals just take advantage of this without paying into it. And that's the reason why the idea is that private companies who have no incentive, right, to provide this good because they can't charge a price for it. If they charge a price for it, someone can just get it for free. Mm. So that's the reason why, you know, governments supposedly need to come in to provide public goods. Mm. But the loose definition that people use about public goods is anything that's provided by government, right? So what I'd like to say is that there are many goods and services provided by government mm -hmm. that are not public goods in an economic sense. Mm. Right? You have public transport, you have private health, public health care, right. you have public schools, but these are not public goods in the technical sense of the term. So just because something is provided publicly doesn't mean it's a, it is a public good in the economic sense. So sometimes these kind of loose ways that people use the terms uh, can create confusion. Yeah, so, so this is one of the common misconceptions, for instance. So yeah. the, the importance of going back to the theory. So, so, so this, is a, this is an interesting issue, right? So we have here a sort of deviation from uh, the, the economic definition and maybe the mainstream sort of definition. Yeah. So do you think it's a case of like, you know, uh, the, the people, you know, gen general public using a different idea of the term market failure uh, to the sort of capture this idea of this uh, catch-all term for any failure in the, the capital markets? Or do you think they actually uh, are trying to harken back to this economic uh, term, the technical term of market failure? I mean, first of all, Economic theory is not something that I, I think is generally accessible to the, to the layman. Right. And, and usually it can be quite counterintuitive, mm -hmm. right? Because in economics, we teach that, you know, if you, if you leave people alone, mm -hmm. you leave people to be free to pursue the self-interest, mm -hmm. right? You, you can generate a degree of social and economic coordination, you yeah. have prosperity that arises without a sense of design, without a central planner designing it and yeah. bringing about the outcome. So these are some of the counterintuitive teachings of economic thoughts you know, that, uh, that the, the layman may not be able to, 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 to you know, relate with, mm. right, uh, uh, on, on the surface. So I think that can partly explain some of the confusion, mm -hmm. right, behind this. I see. Yeah. I see. And certainly, um, you know, we, we both of us being interested in economics, when, when, we, when we listen to the public, when we listen to them cry out about market failures, you know, we, 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 we see them, some of them using the, the, the wrong use of the term and we think they're being disingenuous. But as you pointed out, maybe they were the one re actually referring to right. the economic theory in the first place. Yeah. All right. So, so moving on, right? And I think uh, we, we, we hit on some of the, the key issues here. Sure. About the misconceptions yes. and, you know, the technical, technical definitions. Um, I want to focus on the issue of fixing market failures. Now, this is right, a big, right. big sticking point of course. In, in the topic, right? So, you know, for, for, for many of us, I think it's perhaps instinctual to consider that government intervention uh, is the only response for resolution, which introduces measures such as incentives, taxes, or tariffs, you know, some of which we mentioned earlier, with the, in with the intent of curing some market failure. So to this end, even the renowned international lawyer, professor, and diplomat of Singapore, Tommy Koh, has this to say, quote, however, is it not true that the market is not infallible? Is it not true that when there is a market failure, the state should intervene in order to make the world a fairer one, end quote. 
So, Brian, what is your take on this? And is state intervention the best measure to fixing market failure? Yeah, I think there's some interesting points that you raised. I think you used the word to make the world a fairer one. Mm. So the role of equity in all of this right, is important to consider. Mm. So many people consider inequality or lack of equity or lack of social equity as a form of market failure. Mm. right? But I'm a bit skeptical of that line of reasoning because the market doesn't promise to achieve equality for you. Mm-hmm. The market doesn't promise to achieve social equity. Mm. right? It states that if you leave the market alone, you, you will achieve a high degree of social efficiency. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily equity, right? So you have distribution of income and resources, but it may not be equitable. Mm-hmm. So you may say that the market is unfair or undesirable, but it's wrong for you to say that that's a market failure, mm-hmm. right? In the because economic sense, because... Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. But, but of course, equity is a, uh, is a concern. It can mm-hmm. be a concern, right? Um, but of course, when you try to achieve equity, more, um, when I mean equity, I mean uh, greater, um, fa- a fairer distribution of resources and income amongst people, mm-hmm. and also making certain goods and services like healthcare and education, which are very essential people, more affordable. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean usually by equity, and that's what people mean by equity. And uh, there are policies to solve this problem, but it can often be inefficient. That's mm-hmm. the reason why we need to understand the trade-off between efficiency and equity. If you put equity first, you can actually sacrifice a high degree of efficiency. When you want efficient outcomes, you may have to condone and you know allow for a high degree of equity. So I think that is one uh, trade-off mm. right, that we need to take into account. Right. And I think on, on, a, on a larger basis, when we say fixing market failures, right, government fixing market failures, mm. as I said, we need to understand there are a range of solutions. And some solutions um, to fix market failures may be less harmful to the market. So a very interesting example um, would be, once again, in the area of air pollution, mm-hmm. the one that I gave you just now. So as I said, a more command control method would be to ban, to regulate, to pass legislations that firms must follow. Yeah. Right? So um, another one, as I said, is uh, taxes. Mm-hmm. Right? Recently, we have uh, policies such as tradable permits, mm-hmm. also called carbon uh, emission credits, right? Yes. These are more market-based solutions, mm-hmm. whereby you the, the the government will set a fixed number of permits allocated to firms, mm-hmm. and firms will then trade it amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. And 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 the beautiful thing about this policy is that it incorporates market incentives even into the intervention, mm-hmm. right? Such that you are giving incentives to firms uh, to reduce emissions at at the least cost, mm-hmm. right? So firms have an incentive to reduce emissions more than what they would if they were just being regulated, mm-hmm. right? And, and you are able to achieve overall reduction in, of emissions at least cost. Mm-hmm. So you, you are, it's not just an effective policy, it can actually be more efficient, right? right? So there are these market-based solutions um, that, that are quite relevant uh, and important as well. So, so, so yeah. this is, I think this is an interesting point here. I, I, like, I like that you brought up the example of the, uh, the carbon emission credits. Uh, certainly, we've seen this being being uh, put in uh, different countries, but I believe for fishing as well, to try and uh, cure the problem of overfishing and stuff like that. So I think this is important to distinct, right? Because uh, when a government intervenes, when 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 we when we talk about interventionist policies, we're, we're we're talking about very different things from say the the the, the carbon uh, carbon emission credit uh, policy. These are two different kind of uh, solutions to try and fix the same problem and often can, can have very, very different results based on this. Yeah, but 
Is it is it always the case that the government has to be the one to come up with this uh, system of uh, emissions? I think that is a great question because first of all, we need to understand what is the root cause of the problem you're trying to solve. Mm. Going back to the great example of environment again, some of these environmental problems, right, cannot be blamed the market, right? Because mm. we need to first go back to what is the definition of free market capitalism, which is I think the episode we did before. Yeah. So we say that in free market capitalism, there is a protection of property rights, mm. right? Property rights must be clearly defined, enforced by the state, third party enforcement, mm. and as well there is economic freedom, freedom to buy and sell, to trade, to make money, to make profit. Yeah. But there are many cases of environmental problems that are a result of property rights not being clearly De- delineated and enforced. Mm. So, for instance, you have what we what economists call the tragedy of the commons, mm-hmm. right? Tragedy of the commons where you have an unknown resource, also called a common access resource. Mm-hmm. Nobody owns it. There are no property rights over it. So, every individual person has the incentive to exploit the resource and use as much of it as possible. If not, someone else is going to come in and overuse it. Mm-hmm. So, everyone has the incentive to to overuse it, and the overall result is a state of depletion. Now, I wouldn't say that is a market failure because there is no, I mean, no property rights uh, um, to begin with, right? right? So the solution there is not really to intervene. I mean, the solution is to, uh, I mean, one solution is to uh, create property rights mm. over this. And there's this really excellent example of uh, um, done, that's done by the Property Environment Research Center, right? Mm. PERC in short. And it did research on, on, on the um, African rhinoceros mm. in Africa. How when uh, the government actually privatized the entire common access resource, mm. rhinoceros who were starting to be endangered, yeah. right, they climbed in population again. Really? Yeah, because uh, it was now under private management. Mm. There was ownership. And so when you have ownership over, let's say, a farmland, over a resource, you won't have the incentive to kill all the animals in a sense in one day, mm. right? You have the incentive to preserve the long-term value of that resource. So the key idea here is that property rights are very important in environmental conservation because property rights create the incentives for the person who owns the property rights to preserve and enhance the long-term value of that resource, Mm. which is not possible in a state of no ownership. Mm. That's interesting because I think, and and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the uh, tragedy of the commons sort of uh, incorporates the uh, Earlier, a little bit of the free rider problem uh, that you mentioned earlier. Certainly, in the case of maybe the rhinoceri uh, being hunted down in Africa, you can imagine that you know when they don't have to to bear the cost of um, you know hunting down rhinoceri or being responsible for the survival of the species, then you know basically it's a rush to see who can get the most out of it before <laughs> all the rhinoceri yeah. uh, go extinct. Exactly. So it's the idea of you you can get something for nothing. Mm. Right, and everyone yeah. is thinking that way. So, so there is kind of like, um, in a sense, like a prisoner's dilemma kind of thing over here, whereby right. everyone is pursuing their individual self-interest, but the pursuit of individual self-interest in this case, mm-hmm. right, leads to the common ruin mm. instead of common good. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. of of course, on one hand, it may seem to debunk what Adam Smith said mm-hmm. about the invisible hand. But as I said before, Adam Smith didn't say that the pursuit of self-interest will always lead to common good in every single instance, yeah. right? Yeah. But it is only under certain institutions, right? When we have property rights, 
price system and the system of profit loss when the pursuit of self-interest will lead to common good and in this case it's the lack of property rights Mm. They create the problem. Yeah. So so yeah. So so this this issue is also applicable in many of the different areas. Maybe re- regarding environment that we talked about earlier as well, uh, including pollution or overfishing. You know, certainly we could think about if, if all these um, factories don't really have the, don't really have the property rights over how much uh, pollution they can produce, then they, they can produce as much as they want because they don't really bear the cost of it. Right. So and this is where you know having property rights, introducing the carbon uh, emission credits. This is where. Uh, solving a problem with a market-based solution. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Alright. So we've gone through some of the formal definitions and issues pertaining to market failure and you know perhaps to better understand these concepts I think it will be helpful to apply them to real-life case examples. So we're gonna do I think two examples today one outside of Singapore and one inside Singapore. We're gonna start off with the, the foreign example that of the NHS or the National Health Service in the UK and talk about its inefficient, inefficient practices. So, Brian, you study in the UK, so mm-hmm. could you tell us, uh, could you briefly describe the case and how it shows an example of market failure? Sure. I mean, f- just off the top of my head, I mean, there's an anecdotal example that mm-hmm. I can give. I mean, I, I went to the NHS uh, for some uh, medical, routine medical services yeah. myself because it was NHS clinic just behind yeah. and you know uh, for some routine services I had to wait uh, many hours yeah. right for it so that's an anecdotal example of a serious inefficiency mm. right but I mean if you look at the newspaper reports uh, which are well documented you know there are reports showing how the NHS you know has wasted I mean there's this article on the Daily Mail mm-hmm. uh, April 2017 wasting a staggering 7.6 billion pounds a year on overpriced loo rolls, toilet paper basically, mm-hmm. lost crutches and wheelchairs and management consultants and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so there is a huge range of uh, uh, fund wastage, misallocation of resources, bureaucratic costs, mm-hmm. inefficiency and all these things right? just mm-hmm. simply illustrate the possibility of government failure, yes. right? not market failure. Yeah. And I think this is important because we always talk about market failure, market failure. But before we say that the government has to correct the market failure, we have to be very careful of the possibility of government failure, yes. right? which, which can happen and may be much worse. Mm-hmm. And I think this is important because the economist uh, from Chicago School, uh, Harold Demsetz, right? he calls mm-hmm. this the nirvana fallacy. Mm. Right. Human beings, we, we, we tend to uh, commit this fallacy, mm. which is to compare what is flawed against some perfect ideal. Mm. So we say markets are imperfect, they are problematic, but then we idealize the government. We idealize the government intervention and we don't see that there are numerous flaws and problems mm. in the political process as well. Mm. So if you have a fair comparison between both, what economists call a comparative analysis, mm. right? On a, on a level playing field, markets and governments acknowledging that both are imperfect, the question is that which is actually less imperfect? Right? Mm. So markets are not perfect institutions, but, at, but they have at, provide at least some incentives for individuals to act in an efficient manner. Mm. Right? But the problem is that in the government sector, these incentives are often not there. Mm. Right? And, and, and that's in the case of the NHS. Mm. And, and one of the best uh, reasonings here is that um, they are taxpayer-funded. Right? Mm. If you're taxpayer-funded and not exposed to competition, to that extent, you're not accountable to consumers. Right? The same way as a private company is accountable to consumers. That's why a uh, government hospital or government clinic will tend to be more inefficient. Because anyway, that's not their own money, right? Yeah. If, you're, if you're not spending your own money, yeah. right, 
you will you you will not have the incentive to to, to spend it in the right way. Exactly. Yeah. It, 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 this this reminds me of uh, something that uh, Milton Friedman, the economist Milton Friedman, used to include in a lot of his uh, speeches was that there is uh, no you know you you you're you're only spending your money most efficiently when it's yours and when it's exactly. not yours you don't have exactly. incentive to, exactly. to spend it the best way possible yeah so so i think this point that you raised about milton freeman is very very instructive because to a large extent milton freeman was drawing from this school of thought called the public choice theory mm. and i think it's worth mentioning public choice theory because they are the ones who emphasize the incentive problems that are inherent in the political process mm. right so there is this very important concept i think i can share is called concentrated benefits mm-hmm. and dispersed costs Mm. And this can really explain why there are a lot of bad public policies that can prevail in democratic systems, political mm. systems, right? Policies that benefit some at the expense of society as a whole, mm-hmm. right? So if you if you just uh, look at the side of the voters, because if you say you want government to intervene, right, that yeah. means that the government through the democratic system have to decide policies, and then voters you have to take into account their behavior, mm-hmm. right? So first of all, voters have very little incentive to be informed. Mm-hmm. Since each vote counts for very little, yeah. and they are also subject to systematic biases, mm-hmm. right? So that's why you see, it, you know, Donald Trump being elected, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Second, when bad policies are imposed, right, the cost of an inefficient subsidy program, for example, agricultural subsidies mm-hmm. in the U.S. and the EU, each individual voter suffers very little because the cost is dispersed across all consumers. Mm-hmm. So maybe each consumer just pay one dollar more for a bag of rice mm-hmm. or a bag of vegetables, mm-hmm. right? Then. The third problem on the side of voters is that they, if they're anti-consumer policies, as I said, like inefficient subsidies, this big group of consumers, like maybe 1 million, 6 million consumers, mm-hmm. will find it very hard to overcome the collective action problem, right? They will find it very hard to collectively organize as a lobby group mm-hmm. to influence a political process because mm-hmm. each individual will probably free ride the actions of others. Right. So there are these problems on the side of voters. But when you compare these incentives with the incentive that special interest groups face, mm-hmm. you see a very different picture. While voters as a whole right, don't have much incentive to be informed, special interest groups have a high incentive to be very informed and to be directly invested in this policy. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the benefits of a specific policy can affect them directly. Mm-hmm. When a $100 million subsidy program is passed, the costs, as I said, are dispersed across the population. Mm-hmm. But the benefits are concentrated on this one company or one industry. Concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. So the special interest group will have a great incentive to be informed and will spend great amounts of resources, time and attention to influence political outcomes. That's called rent-seeking behavior. Also, special interest groups tend to be smaller in size and can overcome collective action problems better and they can discipline free riders. That's why in the political process, right, in democratic systems, we see small, well-organized interest groups that prevail. They win subsidies, they win benefits, they win privileges for themselves, and they impose costs on the rest of society. Mm-hmm. That's why, actually, it's the tyranny of the minority, right? Not really tyranny yes, of the majority yes, yes. in the democratic system. So at the end of the day, right, special interests can dominate the political process and concentrate benefits on themselves. Mm-hmm. Right, while externalizing costs on everyone else. Yeah. So the best example I can think of right now is the black cab lobby in London. Yes. That has just blocked Uber. Yes. Right? So consumers suffer, mm-hmm. right? But special interest groups in this policy uh, area benefit. So that's yeah. very interesting because people say in the free market there are externalities, right? Mm-hmm. 
But in the political process, these are externalities as well. Externalities simply means imposing a cost that you don't pay on someone yeah, else. Exactly. And in the political process, externalities abound. Mm. Government policies are implemented not really you know, to, to correct market fear, at least not all the time, mm. right? But government policies always impose cost on other people, mm. concentrating benefits on some while externalizing costs on other people across society as a whole. Mm. Yeah, and I, th- and I think at this point, you know, you brought up the example of the, 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 the taxi cab lobby in the UK exactly, yeah. blocking out Uber, right? I think this is, this is a good time to remind that this is a, a really, really good example of uh, crony capitalism, not re- representative of uh, free market capitalism yes. that we advocate for, but of crony capitalism where, you know, special, inter- special interest groups, as, um, as you've mentioned, they, they lobby and then they work together with government to, to accrue the benefits to themselves at the expense of others. Yeah. Yes, and this problem of crony capitalism is very important. Right? Mm-hmm. So when, when anti-market economists or observers say something's wrong with the free market, look at this corruption, look at this cronyism, you know what, for me as a, as a pro-market person, I totally acknowledge these problems. Mm-hmm. But crony capitalism right, is exacerbated when you have government intervention. Yes. Right. Chronic capitalism is not something you can solve by more government regulation or intervention. Yeah. Why is that so? If you understand public choice, if you understand these points I'm, I'm, I'm raising, mm. the problem here is that when the economy is politicized, because government has a stake in the economy, government can regulate firms, yes. government can give out great subsidies and affect economy outcomes, yes. this will create incentives for special interest groups, big corporations to come to the political process to influence the outcome mm. in their favor. Right? So if you do not want such cronyism, then do not create this incentive mm-hmm. for private firms and corporations to come in to distort political outcomes. Yeah. Right? Remove this government intervention and that what you do is that you are forcing these private companies to compete freely and fairly in the marketplace. Exactly. There will be no incentive to rent seek and they'll be focusing on how to please the consumer, how to innovate my products and services better. Exactly. Right? So one really good example of rent seeking behavior and crony capitalism um, is the issue of farm subsidies, right? Farm mm-hmm. subsidies in the United States, right? According to research, twenty-five billion dollars U.S. dollars is spent annually on farm subsidies. Right? Twenty-five billion. Twenty-five billion USD, exactly, wow. right? So farm subsidies are usually intended to alleviate farmer poverty, but the reality, right? Not the intention. The reality is that the majority of these subsidies go to commercial farms, large, big farms, with an average incomes of two hundred thousand dollars and net worths of nearly $2 million. Mm. So, so the policy here doesn't really, doesn't really achieve the outcome of helping those people that they are very... Exactly, uh, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's why it's important to remember the, the famous phrase that says, we judge policies not by the intention, but by the results. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting because when I talk to some of these market failure concepts and government policies with some friends or even uh, people that, that I talk to, yeah. um, people can sometimes be surprised you know, that government policies are inefficient or, or they are surprised when they see inefficient government policies being pursued consistently. Yeah. But that is not necessarily a surprise because what public choice theories say is that even if you say that private firms and entrepreneurs are self-interested, mm-hmm. politicians are likewise self-interested as well. Just because you shift from business and go into Ministry of Foreign Affairs or Ministry of Education doesn't simply mean that you become an angel. You are similarly self-interested. So we shouldn't be surprised when politicians and governments pursue policies based on self-interest. 
And, the, and, and what public choice theorists are trying to say is that the pursuit of self-interest by politicians and people in the political process may not always align with the public interest. Right. And when both were not, do not align, then government intervention will serve special interests or political interests and not public interest. Yeah. And I think, I think that you brought up a very, a very, very good point there, talking about public interest. And you, talk, you were talking about how people are surprised when they learn of all these uh, government failures and inefficiencies, yeah. right? So I was just curious here, you know, you know being, being, both of us were interested in economics. We, sure. we, 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 we try to look at the whole picture. We don't just look at what the intention is. Mm-hmm. We look at what the outcome is. I think that is the most important thing, right? At the end of the day, you want to see what, what the most efficient use of um, a policy or what the most efficient use of, of uh, some, some tax dollars is, right? So, do you think the issue is that, you know, people who, the, the, the common public, the general public, uh, when they look at economic matters, you know, they're thinking from the view of morality, they're only focusing on, say, the intention rather than looking at the bigger picture. Yes, I, I think many people have good intentions. They want to fix social problems or economic problems, mm. right? But they may not necessarily think twice, take a step back and see what are the unintended consequences that mm. can occur yes. when government steps into the picture. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, a specific government is evil, they're bad and all that, right? Mm. Uh, what we are saying is that there is a certain way that governments work mm-hmm. that may mean that the solution may be worse than the problem to begin with. Mm. So that's why we, we, we must always take a step back and be skeptical about whether or not we want to ask government to come in to fix the social problem yes. or to fix this economic problem. Yes. Right? Not only are there incentive problems that I just mentioned, mm-hmm. another school of thought, Austrian economics, right? they will talk about the knowledge problem how governments lack the knowledge necessary to fix some of these problems. So there are many, many issues that economists raise concerning the limitations of a central planner, the limitations of a government body in fixing these problems. And I think that it behooves us to understand what are these government failures, what are these limitations, before we jump to the conclusion and say, you know what, there's a problem, boom, let's let's fix it with a law, with a policy, with an intervention. Exactly. There are many of these considerations as well. Yeah, and, and I think this points to, you know, really the, the importance of uh, having some economic understanding, right? I mean, if, if people would just uh, listen to the politicians all along, politicians, their, their, their whole life is based around, you know, getting people to do stuff and, and you know, getting their good PR so that they can push, push some policy through, regardless of, of what, what outcome the, the policy would turn out. And certainly, you know, to some of these problems, you know, maybe overpolluting, overfishing, these kind of things, it may, it may be nice to, to say um, for, for, for some government to come up with a policy that bans, sure. completely bans this, completely bans that. But you, know, you don't look at the, the, the larger picture and, and see what other costs or what other externalities result as a, as a, as because of these policies. You know, even even we, we think about the case of uh, over pollution, right? Right. Right. We think about maybe maybe some factory is, is really, really bad, you know, pollutes like, pollutes like crazy and stuff like that. And then, and then the, and the government outright bans or, or shuts down the factory. But then what, what is the cost of that? You know, th- hundreds of thousands of, of factory workers are left without work. You know, then you got the, the products, they're not coming to market. And then you got all the, the, the investment that's being shut down. And then there's, there's certainly political, increased political risk, which uh, reduces investment in the area. Sure. Yeah, so, so I think it's really important uh, to be careful about when, 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 when you're considering and when you're debating and you're considering all these uh, economic uh, government policies to solve these market failures, to look at the bigger picture and not just the intent or the surface level of how these... Yes, exactly. And, and I think um, 
to, to make a, a short clarification because you raised the point about environment, I mean, to be really fair to, to both sides, mm. um, of course, we do not claim that uh, market solutions like property rights can solve all problems, mm. all environmental problems, yeah. right? There are, there could be certain classes of environmental problems that, that really may be genuine market failures, mm -hmm. right? For example, uh, global climate change. Mm -hmm. So for a problem like that, it may be very difficult to install a global tradable permit system. Mm -hmm. It could be very difficult to enforce clear property rights over the air, especially over the internet, uh, over international boundaries. Mm -hmm. So, so it's true, right? That there are these imperfections. So, I think the importance here is that we are not saying that the market is perfect. Mm -hmm. So when people say, "Oh, the uh, markets are imperfect, markets fail," right? I think as pro-market people, we need to point out that some of these points they're making is kind of like, a, I mean, like an obvious point. It's like a truism. Mm -hmm. Of course, markets are imperfect. Mm -hmm. Markets are imperfect simply because they're human creations and human beings are imperfect. Mm -hmm. Nothing is perfect, right? So, so we are not saying that markets are perfect. The reason why we want free markets is not because it's perfect, but it's because there is a tendency of markets to create incentive and knowledge properties mm -hmm. that incentivize and give people the information to act in a way that's socially efficient and to the benefit of society, mm -hmm. much more than governments. Mm -hmm. right? so, so it's a relative it's a relative issue. It's not like it's absolutely good, it's great all the time. That, yeah. That's not what we are saying. Yeah. Right? And, which is, and that's the reason why I, I like this uh, phrase by the economist Alex Tabarrok, mm -hmm. the one who does Marginal Revolution University for all the mm -hmm. videos. Mm -hmm. He likes to say that um, you know, it's, it's market challenge, not market failure, right? <laughs> so there are many challenges. Yeah. There are many problems and, and impediments that market institutions face. Yeah. But these are market challenges, mm -hmm. right? This challenge can itself sometimes be solved by the market. Yes. So the question is that you have a market challenge, right? Can the, the, the market fix this challenge itself? Mm -hmm. Do you really need government? Yeah. Right? One very good example is uh, um, the issue of how entrepreneurs can step in. Mm -hmm. right? so, so this reminds me of the theory by Austrian economists mm -hmm. right, who depict the market as a process. Mm -hmm. right? The market is a process, according to Austrian economists, a process of entrepreneurial discovery, mm -hmm. whereby different entrepreneurs compete in the marketplace, coming up with different ideas, different solutions to problems, and over time engage in a process of trial and error learning. Mm -hmm. And over time, we have better and better information about what works. So this is interesting because when you think about the contribution of entrepreneurs, right? Mm -hmm. Private entrepreneurs can actually fix market challenges. Mm. They can fix market challenges. So the interesting example is that can you turn a public good into a private good? So mm. even a public good, right, may not remain a public good forever. Right. Right? Because public goods are, are goods by its non-excludable and non-rival, correct? Mm -hmm. But if, uh, if, if entrepreneurs or, or, or people, you know, voluntary behave, uh, voluntarily transacting the free market can find ways to turn a public good into a private good, mm -hmm. then it doesn't mean that it's going to suffer from free rider. Mm. Right? So, so, for example, by using technology, I can turn something that is non-excludable into something that is excludable. Mm. So I find ways to charge a price where I couldn't charge it before. Mm -hmm. An example here is that of roads. People say, oh, roads, roads, roads are public goods. Yeah. But I don't see why you can't charge a price on roads. Right? And, and there are many private roads yeah. in history. Yeah. There are toll roads, for example. Right? You, mm -hmm. you, you pay a price, you, you pay like, uh, like at, at the gantry, at a toll, right? you, yeah. you, you collect the toll, yeah. and then you drive. Mm 
in Singapore is the ERP system. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. I mean, yeah. are, I mean, that's not the only way to collect the, 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 the money, the fee. Sure. You can, of course, even put like uh, uh, electronic card readers, for example, at the bottom of every car. And yeah. when you're driving over a certain road, you know, like maybe 10 cents, 20 cents deducted. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So my point is that there are these ways for entrepreneurs to, to come up with solutions mm-hmm. to solve these uh, market challenges. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, uh, you know, the, the, the reason why we, we want these entrepreneurs to come in and provide solutions is because they have incentives to make it better and make it effective. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And others. you think about the, the, the power of entrepreneurs and innovation is, is amazing, right? Especially nowadays with the rise of technology. Yeah. So if we go back to the example of healthcare, yeah. right? So I think the, the issue here is not how we can provide free healthcare everyone because there's no such thing as free. Everything has a cost, yeah. right? So the task here is how can you provide healthcare that is affordable for as many people as possible? Yeah. So what we need is competition. Yeah. And when we have competition in the healthcare sector, and that's where we have a lot of entrepreneurial innovation. You are creating incentives, right, for entrepreneurs to innovate to come up with new solutions mm-hmm. so as to create and provide healthcare an affordable level for as many people as possible. Yeah. You have things nowadays like uh, telemedicine coming up. Mm. Uh, you can you can see the doctor over an app. Yes, you can call yes. a doctor over over your handphone yes, kind of thing. Right? Exactly. Well. Yeah. So this kind of uh, contributions by entrepreneurs, right, set in place a, cre- a process of creative destruction, mm. right, which which creates benefits for 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 consumers, right. Mm-hmm. So so I think the the point here is let's not always think about market failures, market failures and governments must come in. Mm-hmm. Let's think a bit more as market challenges that can spur entrepreneurs to come in with a solution mm-hmm. to solve it. To the, to the benefit of society. Exactly. Yeah. Alright, so, so, so that's very interesting. Now, to, to wrap it up with the final case, um, <laughs> we, we, we talked so much about the NHS case. We need to sure. Talk about the second one. So this is about uh, PIC fraud in Singapore. Oh, this is a serious problem. Yeah, so, so Brian, you used to work at Spring yeah. in Singapore, a uh, government entity. So I'm sure you're pretty familiar with this. So could you explain what the PIC is, what the fraud is, yeah. and how it is a market failure? Yeah. So, I mean, just to clarify, I was not working in the specific department that dealt with PIC, mm-hmm. um, but I generally have an idea about what PIC is meant to do. Right. And as well, myself, I administered other grant schemes in the department that I worked for, mm-hmm. which was in the area of human capital. Mm-hmm. So PIC stands for Productivity and Innovation Credits. Yeah. For some of your listeners who may not be familiar with the Singapore system, yeah. uh, these are basically um, handouts and subsidies given yeah. to firms uh, with the purpose of incentivizing the firms, right, to use these monies mm-hmm. to upgrade mm-hmm. their processes within the company. Yeah. is to upgrade some of their processes. It could be upgrading of their software, installing a new system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the problem with PIC is that the parameters of the usage was very low. It was very poor parameters. So there was very little oversight about how the money was supposed to be used. Mm. And that's the reason why there were many people who came in to apply for the PIC grants, right? And using it for purposes that didn't really relate to productivity and innovation. They could just be using it for buying a new software, for example, Mm -hmm. upgrading their PC, right? I mean, these are not really very innovative kind of um, projects that they are supposed to, that are supposed to implement. So innovating without a purpose. Some, yes, something like this, yes. So um, 
So, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm not saying that all grants are like that. There are some grants which are better administered because you have to expect some deliverables mm-hmm. uh, by the firm. So if I give you, let's say, 50 million or you know, 1 million or something like that, mm-hmm. right, you will have to um, come up with a project and you know, write a report and then I have to assess you after that. So, of course, some grants are better administered, but the PIC one was the one that was subject to the most abuse. Mm-hmm. So according to like uh, newspaper reports, you can check it out on um, Google, in fact, yeah. uh, it, it shows that about $11.6 million worth of fraud was conducted. Yeah. And when I say fraud, I, I mean fake claims. Fake claims that were created. People just sending in uh, claims that actually was fake. Like they they yeah. didn't do anything and they yeah. say, hey, I want to claim this money. Yeah. Right? I want to claim this. So, um, yeah. And, and, and um, what is interesting, I mean, these are real cases. I've come across cases whereby there, there is a whole industry that's created to facilitate fake claims. Right. So there are, there are, this is what we call unproductive entrepreneurship. Right. So you have these entrepreneurs or firms that actually created to help some companies, right? Yeah. Know how to game the system. Yeah. To help them to make a fake claim in games. And then these intermediaries, they'll get a cut of the, of, of the booty, like, yes. in a sense. Yes, yes. Right. So, so this is a classic example of government failure in a sense of rent seeking. You are creating an entire industry. Right? whereby resources are diverted away from economic production, yeah. away from economic innovation, yeah. into these socially destructive and, and very harmful uh, activities. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Of course, I mean, the, the, someone can come back to me and say, sure, why don't we just tighten up the system? It doesn't mean we get rid of the grant. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we get rid of PIC, get rid right. of grants. We, we just tighten up the system. Better administration. Better administration, let's mm-hmm. have more oversight on this and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, my point is that you, could, you, you can reduce the problem, but you're not going to solve the root cause of it. Mm, which is the incentive. Exactly. The root cause of it is that so long as government is there handing out money, mm-hmm. they are handing out money and there's money to be get, people, money to be gotten, right? Then there will be people who will find ways uh, they will spend resources, time and attention to, to seek rents, to yeah. seek special privileges for themselves, exactly. right? So when we talk about rent seeking and fraud, I mean, that's the extreme case. Mm-hmm. But a more indirect or, or should I say a more um, less obvious case would be even the incentive of a private firm just to uh, spend time with the civil servant. Mm-hmm. For instance, being a, an officer in Spring Singapore, mm-hmm. right, which is the government agency in Singapore that's dedicated to helping small businesses. Yeah. I mean, they, they will sometimes even like call you up to have good relationships with you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, they are not allowed to buy me gifts and to give me money because uh, we are very strict in the Singapore civil service yeah. when it comes to these uh, you know, standards of transparency. Yeah. But you see these very indirect expressions of rent-seeking because they will try to create a good relationship with me mm-hmm. so that I can facilitate their grant application much more faster and smoother. Yeah. Right? So, so this is time, attention and resources that they are spending on influencing me as a political actor. Mm. But they could use this time, energy and resources much better by innovating and competing against other companies. Yeah. This is diversion of resources out of the economy into politics, mm. socially destructive entrepreneurship. Mm. I mean, on that case, even the action of, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a small business, you're an SME, you're looking to upgrade your, your production, your, your business model and stuff like that, you know, there are many ways you could, you could, do, you could do this. You could do an internal um, assessment and see where you could improve. You could seek an uh, outside consultant or you could, go, you could go to maybe agencies like Spring and ask them for help, right? Of course, the, the, the action itself of going to Spring rather than going to 
uh, an external consultant or you know doing an internal assessment just because you know the government will do it for for free maybe is is an act of the rent seeking in itself, right? Exactly. I mean, this and and this problem that you highlighted is not just for a specific grant. I think that it's much deeper when you think about a whole slew of Singapore government policies that are being pushed out right now. Mm-hmm. I think a huge initiative right now is that of retraining. Mm-hmm. Right? We want to retrain Singaporean workers and even older citizens to yes. prepare them for the digital economy, to prepare them for the future economy. Right. So we have programs like Skills Future Credits, mm-hmm. Skills Future uh, Earn and Learn, Skills Future you know, uh, leadership development, I mean, a whole whole slew of them, mm-hmm. right? And and the whole intention is good, right? You're trying to retrain workers so that they can uh, be more skilled, yeah. so that they can be reallocated to uh, emerging uh, sectors uh, in the context of economic restructuring and globalization. Yeah. Because you do not want injuries to be left behind, don't have skills, then you can't go into good jobs. Yeah. So the intention is good, but if you think about it, right, these kinds of programs right, have many limitations. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to talk about retraining, it takes time. Mm-hmm. It depends on the receptivity of workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and also when you want to identify these skills, these uh, skills that you want people to be trained in, what skills are they going to, uh, should they be trained in? Mm-hmm. You need to do research, you need to identify it. Right? And the problem is that the, does the government have all the knowledge that's necessary to predict and understand and anticipate and foresee all the skills and knowledge that workers need to have to prepare for the future economy? Mm-hmm. Right? But when you compare this with the private sector, as I said, entrepreneurs. So when you think about how entrepreneurs have launched things like massive open online courses, mm-hmm. right? private educational and training platforms, mm-hmm. these I would say are much more efficient and responsive training and upskilling platforms as compared to government platforms. Yes. Why? Because most probably, right, they will be more responsive to market demand. Mm-hmm. They are on the ground. So they will be more in tune with uh, uh, changes in the industry, they will be more in tune with what are the new industries that are coming up, mm-hmm. what are the new technologies that are coming up. So in that sense, right, the workers or individuals that go for retraining there may get a better deal. Mm-hmm. And when we say, oh, government is going to provide it for free and for free, firstly, there's no such thing as free mm-hmm. because everything comes up out of resources but interestingly if you go on edX.org Coursera courses mm-hmm. that's really free yep. because you can go for these courses for free well of course the only resource you'll be consuming is time right? exactly yeah. I mean of course it's not free in the sense of, of it's no cost mm-hmm. right because the entrepreneur you know, they are doing like a social mission it's like a social enterprise right. so they, 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 they do bear some cost mm-hmm. right but, but that is really in a sense free for the consumer mm-hmm. right but of yeah. course the government program is is Free only in so far as you pay out of your tax pe- tax pocket. <laughs> right, right. So once again, I think the point here is the power of entrepreneurs innovating and creating new platforms and solutions mm-hmm. which can meet market challenges. Yes. In this case, the challenge of retraining and upskilling workers in a globalized economy. Yes, I I love that you brought the point up about uh, market. Uh, so market solutions to, to market meet, solutions market to market solutions yeah to meet sort of the uh, uh, upskilling demand uh, of, of that's workers, right. right this reminds me so much about uh, this story I heard in in China in China there are a lot of um there are a lot of what are known as factory cities where a lot of um uh, you know migrants from rural cities they will go to these factories and they will they will start up often when uh, you know 16, 17 as teenagers working there and then they will work their way up so. One of the one of the challenges that they've cited is that 
you know, if if you are if you're a migrant worker and you wanna you wanna upgrade your skills, you wanna jump up, you don't wanna become a, like like a like a factory worker anymore. You wanna do like secretarial work. You wanna become a office worker, right? You can't do that through the government schools because they don't they don't teach these kind of skills. But what is interesting is that in within these uh, factories, right, within these factory cities, I was I should say that there are smaller you know entrepreneurs who set up these you know private schools where they teach the factory workers how to you know all, all, all these different skills that can they can upgrade uh, they, that they can use to upgrade and then bring to their next job. For example, computer skills. For example, you know learning English. For example, uh, formal training or etiquette training and stuff like that. So it's a, I think that is just a fantastic way. Uh, a, a fantastic solution to sort of uh, meeting the market's demands. Yeah. That's right, and, and think that you know this process of economic development, even in uh, in countries like you mentioned China, mm-hmm. ca- other countries like India, is something that uh, we should embrace. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think the question is whether or not governments can improve on this market system. Mm-hmm. Of course, when it comes to economic development, some economists say we need governments to step in policies, industrial policy, or whatever, mm-hmm. to boost and you know create economic development. Of course, that's a uh, question that is worth exploring uh, mm. uh, on, on a separate basis yeah. but but if I may just add one more provocative idea for your listeners right I, I think most economists even if they are free market they will acknowledge that there are certain things right that just can't be provided by the market mm-hmm. for example law and order mm-hmm. security services and defense services so that's like the minimal state mm-hmm. right so yes we want free markets Right, there is government failure, but there are certain things that just have to be provided by the government. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, recently there are some economies that show even cases such as law, security services can be and have been provided by the market. Hmm. So this suggests, it suggests, of course it's not definitive proof, we need to do more research. Mm-hmm. Um, it suggests the possibility of anarcho-capitalism, mm-hmm. right? What is anarcho-capitalism? A society in which everything is privatized. Mm-hmm. Even legal services, even security services, defense services, mm-hmm. be provided for profit on the market. Interesting. Yeah. Of course, possible. that's something we can discuss. That's a huge topic in of itself. <laughs> we can, uh, we can discuss that separately. Right. That's right. Alright, so and, and with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and uh, much thanks to Brian as well for being such a wonderful guest again. Uh, on, on today's topic of market failure. So, Brian, I understand that your organization, Students for Liberty, is scheduled to have uh, some monthly speaker events for the remainder of the year, including one at the end of the month. So, would you like to share what is uh, what what they're going to be talking about, and you know when it'll be held? Yeah. Firstly, thank you very much, Danny, for inviting me on this show again. It's always a pleasure talking about economics, mm-hmm. sharing these thoughts to your listeners. I think it's very important that we are doing economics education because economics affects people, mm-hmm. and uh, misunderstanding economic principles can create right really bad policy outcomes as we shared. Yeah. So, um, and moving on to the event that uh, you were referring to. Mm-hmm. So, the event is on the twenty eighth of October. Mm-hmm. It's on a Saturday afternoon at four pm. Yeah. Uh, the location is at ACC Edu Hub. I think the location can be provided in the link that you provide. Sure. Um, so the topic is on uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, <laughs> bracket, chewing gum too. Right? So okay. that's just a provocative title whereby we are just going to talk about the economics of prohibition. Mm-hmm. We're just going to use examples of how governments around the world, not just in Singapore, mm-hmm. have tried to prohibit and se- severely regulate mm-hmm. substances such as uh, alcohol, mm-hmm. drugs, cigarettes, um, and, and we will show what are some of the unintended side effects mm. and the unintended consequences of these uh, 
uh, misguided policies. Right? So, so for instance, even in Singapore, we are thinking about a sugar tax. Mm-hmm. We are thinking of how are we going to have plain packaging, yeah. right? Even for cigarettes, and so we want to have some uh, inject some economic discussions um, into this uh, into this uh, area yeah. and see what we can uh, learn more about it. Yeah, yeah. sounds fascinating. And certainly, with what we talked with what we talked about today, it sounds like an extension of uh, definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice extension, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So thanks again for listening in. Thank you very much. Yep. <laughs> if you like this episode, you can help by sharing or subscribing to the Economical Rice podcast on iTunes or Stitcher by following on social media. Links will be provided below. So once more, this has been your host Danny at the Economical Rice podcast with guest Brian Chang of Students for Liberty. We're over here. We have to share the grains of capitalism. Okay.